Hello and welcome back to the podcast, Amazing Tales from Off and On Connecticut's Beaten Path. I'm your host, Mike Allen. You know, I think one thing that all of us human beings can agree upon is that we have this in common. We've probably all stood outside in the deep dark of night, peering up out into the heavens and trying to decide what it all means. Where did we come from? How big's the universe? How far away are those stars really? Well, an absolutely phenomenal advancement in our understanding came over the last 30 years thanks to the Hubble Space Telescope, and it was built nowhere else but Danbury, Connecticut. And here to talk about it is one of the principal scientists who actually helped build it, Sankarin Garinathan, and also Bridget Girton, Danbury Museum Executive Director, whose father worked at Perkin Elmer when it was built, and she got to see Hubble during construction. And now, Hubble, uncovering the secrets of the universe. Do you ever wonder just how big is the universe, and how old is it, and how do those black holes really work even though we can't see them? Huge questions for us, but really for those members of the scientific community who thankfully have devoted their life to getting a better understanding of it, because I certainly don't understand most of it. Recently, I had the privilege to speak with Sankarin Gaurinathan. Now, he prefers to go by his nickname of Gauri, so that's how I'm going to refer to him throughout this podcast. Gauri is an engineer, and not just any engineer, a very talented one, and one of many who worked on the premier scientific project called the Hubble Space Telescope. Now, Gauri came to the U.S. from India back in 1964 for college and ended up working at the Perkin Elmer Corporation by 1966. Now, at that point, Perkin Elmer had had a lot of success landing military contracts on these extremely sophisticated optical projects, and most of them, frankly, having an outer space reason for existing. Now, I'm no engineer or astronomer or scientist, but I do enjoy the topic of outer space, and I at least try to keep up on such discussions. Like, for instance, to begin with, you go outside and you see the sunlight, and the light you're seeing actually is 8 minutes and 20 seconds old, because that's how long it took that light wave to go the roughly 100 million miles from the sun down to the earth. And then you look at the stars at night and realize that the light you're looking at left years ago. I mean, these are all very sort of intimidating factors to think about. Uh, do you f feel the same way from where you sit? Yeah, especially when I was very young in high school, and I was always interested in science, I would always marvel, and then I'd get a little nervous and, oh my God, you know. But as I grow older, I realize things that are extremely small are also very, very complicated, but physical size awes us. And I see that with my grandchildren, they automatically are awed with the size of the universe and this and that, and I tell them, that the atom is extremely complicated, too. We still don't know what's inside the atom, you know, for a fact. Okay, but for the scientists who want to understand the heavens, the frustration was in trying to make calculations about those pesky light waves from the friendly confines here on Earth. When I stop to think about what the Hubble tried to do, I think about the distortion effect that one gets in a swimming pool of you know diving down deep and looking up and seeing blurriness and actually that's what was happening 
when the humans were standing on the earth looking at the stars and not realizing the atmosphere was getting in the way and distorting things. And that's why stars twinkle, which is the, the good part, but it was the bad part for studying it. So is that is that kind of what you tried to overcome? Yeah, that is correct. Astronomers got very interested in going to space because they were always struggling with ground-based astronomy because of scintillation, that what you just described, the twinkling, and the atmospheric disturbances, they felt if we went into space, we wouldn't have to deal with that. So they, they started to uh, go to Congress and say, you know, they should fund scientific instruments to be flown into space. People forget that the the reason we went into space was really from a military perspective to make sure the Russians are not ahead of us. And if the Russians went into space and if they dominated space, we would be left behind. Well, that's why we went into space, starting with Eisenhower and then with Kennedy and Johnson. Because it was Kennedy who said, well, let's also explore the, the universe and the surrounding areas and so forth. And he started the trip to the moon and so forth. Around the same time, astronomers said, forget about the moon. We really would like to spend money sending telescopes in space. Now, if you really want to understand just what Hubble has accomplished, you need a quick primer on light. Nothing too deep or technical. What we see every day is what's called the visible spectrum. So think of the colors of the rainbow, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, and purple. Well, there are other kinds of light waves beyond the visible spectrum. There's, for example, x-rays, and they tell us if we have broken bones and teeth. And there are infrared rays. Those are the ones that heat us or burn our skin if we don't wear sunscreen. Now, we don't see x-rays, we don't see infrared rays, but they are there. And there are a couple of other types of light waves out there, microwaves, gamma rays, ultraviolet rays, and even radio waves. Well, all of these light waves played an important role in the master plan set out back in the 1960s for exploring outer space. The plan was that we will send telescopes to view space, not only in the visible, which is what Hubble was, but also in the infrared, also in the X-ray spectrum, so that we can look at the universe in all these areas of the light that is coming from the stars. So Perkin Alma built the very first infrared telescope that went into space and also the very first X-ray telescope that went into space and the Hubble telescope. The universe, we think everything is coming in the visible because that's what the human eye responds to. But there's a lot of information coming to us in X-rays and in infrared. Just give me sort of a, uh, for a mere mortal, uh, an explanation of, of how Hubble worked and what were the key components. Well, in fairness, Hubble was really two separate contracts. One given to Lockheed Martin, they won the spacecraft contract. And Perkelma competed against Eastman Kodak and got the optical telescope assembly. The telescope assembly had all the necessary stuff to form an image. Now, would we just focus for a second, no pun intended, on the mirror? Uh, it was eight feet wide and 2,000 pounds, is that correct? It's a big mirror, yes, yes, yes. When you actually see it, it is huge. Yes, it's huge. Without giving away any trade secrets, I mean, how do you work on something that big? And, and your, your basic idea here was you had to polish this mirror down to within microns of, of accuracy. And, and how do you do that? Oh, you don't know, have fractions of a micron. 
Yeah. Actually, for a very long time, I don't know if it still is, it was called sensitive information. The accuracy to which we polished the primary mirror, uh, we kept it a secret and we never published the data for a long time because the government said, you know, let's not let everybody know how accurately we polish it because we don't want them to know our capability. So we did that. But it's very, very accurately polished. Everything is handled by machines, really. You don't really manually handle such a large mirror. We had to build what they call mounts, something to hold the primary mirror. There is a special mount that can simulate zero gravity on Earth so that the mirror is floating on this mount. That's how we measure the surface of the primary mirror, because if you measure it in gravity, it will sag. It will also introduce other uh, aberrations induced by the support system. Well, today you'll find Bridget Girton at the Danbury Museum and Historical Society, where she's the executive director. But when she was growing up, her dad was a lawyer at Perkin Elmer, and that qualified her for a somewhat restricted visit to that top-secret facility on Worcester Heights Road in Danbury during what they called Family Day. One of uh, the defining moments of my childhood was going with my family to watch and see inside uh, the building uh, the polishing of the mirror. I remember being completely fascinated with what they were going to do. You know, uh, the peering into space and I remember when they had the family day, people could bring their families in and we, you know, we didn't get close, <laughs> not even close, but uh, we were behind glass and it felt to me, and I was a lot shorter then, it felt to me that we were like two or three stories above looking down and uh, to see it was like, wow, you know, this is going to go out into space and it's going to help us see the our world in a completely different context and it blew my mind as as a kid you know as with any such groundbreaking project there were issues along the way technical issues one major issue after the project was completed and delivered to nasa that we'll get into in a minute but along the way there were some unique scientific roadblocks that had to be overcome and it led to delays and cost overruns nothing new there well, it did lead to eventual finger-pointing between NASA and Perkin Elmer, and Gowrie was on the front lines. When you talk about the pressure that Perkin Elmer was under to get this uh, pushed out, I think at one point it was uh, uh, something like 50% over budget, three years overdue, a lot of pressure, deliver, deliver, and just try and describe for everybody what it was like to work under that kind of uh, unbearable pressure. Let me tell you. The reason the delays were caused was because of the fine guidance sensor. Because it is so much more difficult than the primary mirror that even people in Perkin Elmer, in my opinion, didn't realize that. But that's my expertise, and I worked on the fine guidance. I knew it was a very, very difficult uh, thing to do. Because when this telescope is moving in orbit, it is moving pretty fast. People think, you know, it's just up in space floating around. No, it's moving every 90 minutes. It's going around the Earth. That's a tremendous speed. Now, you got to grab a star and keep it exactly pointed at such a high rate. It is more difficult than what you do on the ground. Now, just stop and think about that for a moment. The spacecraft carrying the Hubble telescope is hurtling through space at 5,000 miles an hour as it orbits the Earth every 90 minutes. Well, that's simply dizzying. 
And consider further, you had hundreds of workers from two different companies trying to coordinate on such an incredibly trailblazing project and trying to figure out such head scratchers as how do you keep the spacecraft from jostling around while you're trying to focus on a very distant star? We had two separate teams uh, from Lockheed and Perkin Elmer working together for years, making sure the whole thing would work right. We had all kinds of problems uh, during the fabrication of the fine guidance sensor because the fine guidance sensor has extremely complicated electronics built by a company called Harris that had to build microprocessors from scratch to work in orbit to do all the computations and calculations necessary to do the job. And then we had a company called Baldwin Electronics in Little Rock, Arkansas, that built the little solar systems that moved the lenses inside the fine guidance sensor to keep it locked on the star. That's a very complicated piece of, of instrument. And consider that all of this was 60 years ago when the processes and tools for doing a lot of this didn't even yet exist. And so, yes, the extra time it took to figure out all of this did lead to cost overruns. And unfortunately, shortly after the telescope was launched, another problem was uncovered, a big one, namely that the primary mirror of the main camera was out of focus and had not been properly polished. Time is money in, in these programs. Because we were delayed so much with the fine guidance in order to test it and make sure it worked and everything else and all the electronics, that took us so much time that when you look at the cost, the fine guidance cost way, way, way more than the primary mirror. And they stored the telescope for two years because of the Challenger disaster. Now, my feeling is NASA could have done a full test end-to-end -end at that time. If you tested the telescope end-to-end, -end, we would have caught the fact that the primary mirror was not was imperfect, and we could have fixed it, but NASA didn't want to spend the money. I can't talk about that. You know, people have to decide uh, what is important, what is not, but that's a different issue. You make an important point, which I think uh, you've even said has not really been pushed enough in, in the media and to the public, which was that you knew that there could be problems and therefore you designed this to be repaired uh, once it was in space. Absolutely. Absolutely. Do you know the fine guidance was refurbished in orbit after seven years? They brought it back and we and, and Danbury, they cleaned all the optics, uh, they put new electronics and they flew and they put, sent it back up in space. It was designed to be done like that. Unbelievable. Now, you you obviously had to have been so proud to be associated with a project like this. Absolutely. My, my question is, were you there the day when they actually said, okay, we're taking all this material and, and, and these incredibly sensitive scientific instruments and now have to fly them out to California, part of it being flown out of Danbury Airport in the C-130 and part being uh, flown out of Stewart Air Force Base with a complete military-guided uh, convoy over Interstate 84 to get there. Did you go to either airport to see those uh, planes take off? Pokemon had a big staff. That, that That's what they did, transport payload. We called it a payload, payloads from place to place. That's what's that expertise. Uh, no, I was not involved in that at all. Well, in full disclosure, I was there that day. Back in those days, I was news director for radio stations WINE and I-95FM in western Connecticut, and I got clearance to stand at Danbury Airport with all the dignitaries as that C-130 transport plane took off. Now, I can tell you everybody there, including yours truly, was nervous 
because we knew the cost of the cargo on that plane was in the billions, and that plane was lumbering down the relatively short runway at what seemed like a very slow speed. I learned a very important lesson that day, which is never underestimate the skills of the U.S. military. Because by the time that C-130 got to the end of the runway, it had enough lift to become airborne. They knew it. We didn't. But it was on its way then to California and frankly remains one of the highlights of my 10-year career as a journalist to see that take off. Well, the entire region was invested in this Hubble project, and so much so that when that problem with the mirror was discovered, it impacted a lot of families throughout the greater Danbury area who had people working at Perkin Elmer, including Bridget Gertens. I remember being incredibly disappointed when there was a, a small problem uh, with that, uh, as found a, a few years later. But Hubble has still uh, still managed to redefine our understanding of space and uh, the material aspects of how far we can go and what we can see. And touching on that in a small way made an impact on me. But I also know you'll find many past employees of Perkin Elmer who will talk about that project and some projects they still can't talk about. But it was a defining moment for so many people in our community. So in my oversimplified manner, let me try and explain to you what the issue was with the mirror. Now, the mirror that had the problem was part of the primary camera, which itself was focused on very distant, faint stars. Thinking of looking out in the heavens in the middle of the night and seeing that one really faint star and just focusing on it. That's what the main camera was trying to do. Well, the camera had to stay trained on that star with absolute perfection for a long period of time to get enough meaningful light wave data to make the whole process worthwhile. Even slight jiggles could cause the resulting image to be blurry and of subpar quality. Well, it was found that the mirror's final polishing was off by a matter of less than the width of a human hair, but that's all it took. The images that were first coming back were fuzzy and not at all what had been anticipated. But luckily, the fine guidance systems that Gowrie had worked on were performing without issue. And that's important because at least some of the data that was coming back had incredible value still to the scientists on the ground, even though it wasn't at that peak level that everybody had hoped for. Now, what the three guidance systems actually did, if you can envision this, was to lock on three different stars than the one that the camera was locked on. And this kept the camera in the center of the telescope focused on that very faint star. Now, the camera was out of focus by just a little bit. You could still make out the star, it just wasn't crystal clear. But with the three guidance systems working flawlessly, some of that data was still meaningful. Well, meanwhile, back on Earth, Perk and Elmer had to sit down and figure out how to make the repairs to get that mirror in shape while it was still in orbit. And by itself, what they did was an extraordinary undertaking that deserves endless accolades. The resulting images that Hubble has sent back, and I'm sure you've seen some of them over the last quarter century, have literally altered how we see and understand the cosmos. Well, after the issue with that mirror was resolved, Hubble exceeded all expectations. It was designed for 15 years, still going strong after 30. The onboard mechanisms working flawlessly. And now the Webb Telescope has been launched, which will even further expand our ability to explore the universe. So when you stop and think, what has Hubble meant for humankind? Well, obviously, we have much more knowledge of the heavens themselves, as well as the development of all those tools and processes that we needed to get going so that the telescope could get into space in the first place. 
For example, all those microchip processors that are on board to control the focusing mechanisms, well, they were created through the development of the field of microlithography, and that technology is still used to this very day to make those exceptionally minuscule computer wafer chip circuits that power everything today in all of our machines. And that 2,000-pound, 8-foot mirror itself well, it was the first one to be polished not by hand, but by a computer-guided machine. And they perfected that technique where they were able to do it in a coarse manner and then in a fine manner and then put a shine on it. But Perkinelma was the first company that came up with the whole concept of how to do computer-controlled polishing. And that was a major, major breakthrough. We've learned because of Hubble that the universe was born 13.7 billion years ago. We've learned how planets are formed. We've learned that galaxies harbor supermassive black holes. We've learned that Pluto has four moons. We saw a comet collide with Jupiter. And we've had mankind's deepest view of the universe 13.4 billion light years from Earth. When you hear that, that, that just seems almost overwhelming. Hubble made so many discoveries. I'm not an astronomer. I hear what you're saying, but I, you know, that is a little bit beyond my level of expertise. Now you look at the James Webb Telescope, okay, which is uh, it, it's it's you know 40 times light gathering power stronger and 50 feet wide and all that. It's just a leapfrog ahead. So when you look at that, do you just kind of shake your head, or or you know what's involved in this? Yes, I do know because, you know, when I left Perkinelmer, I went to work for TRW, who was the prime contractor on the telescope. And I was on what they, you know, they have something called a red team. I spent several months uh, reviewing the, the conceptual design, the actual design and so forth. I was uh, helping TRW to hone in on, on, on a, a good design. I am very familiar with that technology because I had worked on those projects mainly for Star Wars, because we needed very, very, very large mirrors to operate in space for Star Wars to work. It's phenomenal technology. Yes, it's phenomenal technology. And uh, it's going to improve the light gathering capability as well as the angular resolution of, of a telescope by, by an order of magnitude. So maybe your job, like mine, doesn't involve building a device that's going to answer the questions you think of while you're stargazing at night and seeing those twinkling stars. But at the end of the day, we all have something in common with Gowry. Namely, a job's only as good as the people you work with. I was very happy to work with some of the most marvelous people at various levels. Guys who were extremely theoretical, guys who were very practical, people who worked with their hands, who were enormously skilled. It was a phenomenal team. You know, almost a thousand people at one point worked on the Hubble. So it was a big, big team exercise. And I was very, very proud to be part of that. And as far as Bridget Girton's concerned, particularly for the people who were involved in the project, this was yet another very significant contribution that the Danbury area has made to society. Danburyans have gone all over the world and done amazing things. I could, I could talk to you at length about uh, the people and the stories and their journeys. This was different, though. This was a piece of our community going somewhere that none of us would ever go. But perhaps the greatest compliment of all came from NASA itself, which has declared Hubble the greatest single scientific achievement involving outer space since Galileo himself first looked upward with his telescope back in the 1500s.
wraps up this episode of Amazing Tales from Off and On, Connecticut's Beaten Path. On a side note, I just want to say if you have not seen IMAX Theater Special on Hubble, I'd recommend you put it at the top of your bucket list. I won't spoil it, but I will tell you at the end, they show you just how far the telescope has seen out into the universe, and it's done in such a way that, at least with my family, it left us speechless for over an hour afterwards. Literally couldn't say anything, just thinking. My thanks to Gauri, Sankarin Gaurinathan, and Bridget Gurton for sharing their incredible knowledge about the Hubble Telescope Program. Well, if you like this show, make sure you follow the podcast wherever it is you get your podcasts, and that way you'll be notified when the next episode is coming up. And tell your family, friends, and colleagues. Also, I do do presentations on the topics I discuss here on Amazing Tales. I do in-person and Zoom talks, and I'd be happy to discuss an appearance at your group if you're interested. Just email me at amazingtalesct at gmail.com. Amazing Tales from Off and On Connecticut's Beaten Path is a production of True North Associates, LLC. This is Mike Allen. Be safe and please stay healthy. (laughs) 